interrupt you, but uh, if Michael Jackson's being played on a Sunday, I kind of hoped Steph was going to do the moonwalk or a 45 degree lean or something like that. Next time. Next time, right, Steph? <laughs> where's, uh, where's my parents of young children at? I have a three and a half year old and a nine month old. Do we have like parents of young children here? Yeah, yes. Um, I don't know if it was just like the turn of the end of August, beginning of September, but my kids have been like hit sick, like p regularly, and uh, wild childhood illnesses and colds have just been running rampant in my house. So if I start sniffling or uh, coughing my guts out, I apologize. It's the last kind of tail end of this uh, cold. Um, but good morning, everyone. My name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here. And for the last several weeks, we've been uh, diving into and unpacking the gospel according to Mark, seeing what the kingdom of God looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. And one thing I actually really love about Mark's writing is that it's fast-paced and it's action-packed. Completely disregard the fact that we're on like part 20 and we're only at like chapter 7 because the way Mark writes, he has Jesus burst onto the scene, casting out demons, healing people, and calling people to follow him as God's kingdom is here now. However, the good news Jesus was, was, was bringing rustled the feathers of the religious leaders of his day, which resulted in a series of conflicts. We've seen a bunch already concerning Jesus' authority to forgive sins or his views on Sabbath, to the religious leaders even accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon and that all the good he was doing was actually sourced in evil. Despite the good Jesus was and has been doing, he seemed to always be moments away from another confrontation. And so this leads us to our teaching text this morning where once again Jesus is confronted by a group of religious authorities. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you this morning, turn to Mark chapter 7 and we're going to read up to verse 23. Get the complete context here. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart? But his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slender, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So there's actually a couple things going on here, and really this text can be broken into, into two parts. Your Bible might actually have that broken down into two parts. The first being an initial focus on what's called the tradition of the elders versus the commandments of God, and the second on purity and what actually defiles a person. So we're going to start with section 1, verses 1 to 13, on traditions versus commandments. This section begins with the Pharisees and scribes, think Jewish Bible experts, bringing an accusation to Jesus in the form of a question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This was actually meant to be taken as a slight toward Jesus. Essentially, they're saying, what kind of rabbi are you? Are you even teaching your disciples what they should be taught? Because it looks like they're failing to uphold one of the simplest, washing their hands before they eat. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't initially engage with their question about hand washing. Rather, he sidesteps it completely to first push back on the logic of these religious leaders and what their question is actually implying. Jesus actually sends an accusation back to the Pharisees and scribes in, verse, uh, in verses 6 to 8, calling them hypocrites, and then quoting Isaiah 29, 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then accuses them of leaving the commandment of God and holding only to the tradition of men. And to drive his counter-accusation home, he gives them an example in verses 9 to 13, which says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But I say, but you say, sorry, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. The difficult thing, uh, actually, with this passage is that readers need to be steeped in first-century Jewish uh, life and religious practices to really understand what's going on. And at the beginning of this passage, and a little bit throughout, we even see Mark chime in with little explanations, those bracketed comments, that's Mark kind of giving a sneak peek to, to his audience, like, hey, this is what this means. And it actually tells us that his intended audience was likely a non-Jewish audience. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on ancient Jewish religious practices by any means, 
uh, but a little research can go a long way. Jesus has just accused the religious leaders, uh, yeah, the religious leaders that the traditions they hold to actually serve as a way to substitute and replace God's own words and commands. And he points to one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and one of the traditions of the elders called Korban. This practice was a way for a person to dedicate their goods and resources to God. And that actually doesn't sound like a bad thing at all. It actually sounds really good and a way to honor God with their stuff. However, the heart behind this action was often deceitful and wicked. Dedicating things in this way was actually an act of deferred giving, so a person could dedicate goods to God in this way and would actually retain control over their stuff until they died, in which case uh, what they had promised to God would pass into possession of the temple. Concerning this practice, biblical scholar T.W. Manson stated that a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. So let me break down what, what was going on with the tradition of Korban. Jewish people were commanded by God to honor their father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and so it's a very important one. And one of the practical ways they were to do that was to care for them in their old age as their parents had cared for them when they were young by sharing their food and resources with them. It was like the ancient retirement policy. However, if a person wanted to get around this, they could dedicate their goods and resources to God, allowing themselves full use of their stuff until they died, with now no obligation to use their possessions to care for their elderly parents, simply telling them, whatever you would have gained from me is actually given to God. The act of dedicating their stuff looked like worship and sacrifice to God, but its practice actually led them to disobey the very command of God to honor their father and mother. Jesus concludes this example by saying, and many such things you do. This is not the only tradition you hold to that actually distorts and breaks God's commands. Jesus is responding to the question behind the question of hand washing. What kind of rabbi am I? The one who will teach people to truly obey God's words and not hold to these traditions that actually prevent them from doing so. So having showed the faulty logic and actions of the Pharisees and scribes with this example, Jesus turns to the question they raised concerning hand-washing, another tradition of the elders. And so this moves us to the second part of this passage that concerns purity and what defiles a person. Continuing in verses 14 to 16, Jesus now directs his attention to the people around him, calling them to him, saying, hear me, all of you. Under, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Once again, we actually need to understand uh, a bit more about Jewish religious practice, especially those revolving around ritual purity, uh, to make sense of what Jesus is saying and where he's going and why these religious leaders were concerned in the first place with his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. So the Greek word that's translated here as defiled means to make ritually impure or unclean. 
Now, when people today, uh, I mean, these are very like antiquated words, but when people today uh, direct words like defiled or impure or uh, unclean or some other word that conveys a similar sentiment uh, towards someone else, it's often in the context of perceived character flaws or moral failures or even due to a belief of someone being less than or second rate uh, compared to another. I'm, I'm a history buff, so, so think on the sentiment that Nazis held toward Jewish people. Because of how these words are often used today or in recent history, if we're not careful, we actually import these sentiments when we read Scripture passages that deal with being ritually impure or unclean, defiled. However, being defiled or in a state of impurity, as laid out in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, was not due to the moral failure, uh, was not due to moral failure or character flaws, and it did not indicate that someone was second rate or less than another person. Now, the book of Leviticus is often a tough read. If you've ever attempted to read the Bible in a year, it was probably around Leviticus where you either gave up entirely or maybe just skipped it. Believe me, I've done that before. It's okay. Uh, Leviticus seems so foreign to us, and that's because it is. It's very foreign to us. I've heard it uh, described as a priestly tech manual describing how ancient Jewish priests were to do their jobs. And I know most of us don't read tech manuals for fun, let alone ones that are thousands of years old. However, if we can get past some of these cultural disconnects, we can actually see the heart behind this book. That being God making a way for broken, fallen people to enter into and be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. Just as an example, Leviticus uh, chapters 11 to 15, we're going to read it all. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, outlines a variety of ways. Of per- Everyone's like, oh, thank God. Like, um, outlines a variety of ways a person can become uh, defiled, ritually impure and unclean. Things like eating certain animals, giving birth, coming into contact with bodily fluids, having a skin disease. I actually currently have some eczema spots on my hands, so that likely would have rendered me ritually impure uh, back in the day. Uh, to touching things with mold or, or a dead body. All of which and more led to a person becoming defiled and ritually impure, preventing them from entering into God's physical presence for a time. Now, we're talking about Mark this morning, so we can't go down the complete rabbit trail of Leviticus right now, but if we think about it, most of these things that would defile a person would just come up in everyday life. Touching a deceased family member in order to bury them is an important part of everyday life. It honors the life that they had, and it allows the family to appropriately grieve. Childbirth is good, and I'm aware if you've ever gone through childbirth, you can likely not say that when you're like midway through the horrors of labor, but once, once the baby's here, man, it's actually quite good. And here, God is making a way for the ancient Jewish people to conduct normal, everyday life, going through the ebbs and flows of becoming impure, but if handled rightly, as God outlined, they would become pure again and able to enter into his presence. So, 
moving back to Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, why the washing of hands? Because you can actually scour the Old Testament and you won't find a command for a Jewish person to wash their hands before they eat or after coming back from the marketplace. The only instances of hand washing as a method for ritual purity is found in Leviticus 15 where it talks about how if a person with some kind of uh, uh, bodily discharge touches someone else without first washing their hands, they would render that person they touched uh, ritually unclean for the day. And in Exodus 30 verse 19, which describes the priest's need to wash before they go into the tabernacle or before they uh, conducted any sacrifice. That's it. So how did this tradition of the elders develop? Well before the time of Jesus, ancient Jewish scholars and religious uh, leaders discussed how they could possibly keep all of God's commands. Some commands seemed ambiguous. Think of the, the command to stop work every Sabbath day. What actually constitutes as work? And others could likely be obeyed if, uh, if they simply introduced some secondary commands that, that would act like a fence, preventing people from even getting close to breaking the law. These fences became what was called the oral law or the tradition of the elders. However, over time, these traditions increasingly focused on secondary issues that either obscured or even perverted God's law altogether. And by Jesus' day, one way these traditions were being used was as a means to entrench a Jewish ethnic and national identity to the exclusion of all others, especially their Roman oppressors, essentially acting as a form of ancient uh, political propaganda. Following these traditions and purity laws in this way served the religious and political leaders of Israel as a rally cry of sorts, as a way of saying, we are Israel, God's chosen people, holy, undefiled, and able to stand in God's presence, unlike you, you defiled Gentiles. And you'll be sorry one day that you ever oppressed us. And so the tradition was set in place to wash their hands after coming back from the market and before eating to not only attempt to go above and beyond what God's law asked, but also to make sure that the taint of those defiled Gentiles wouldn't make them defiled as well, perpetuating an us-versus-them mentality. Why are they not washing their hands becomes a question of their allegiance. Are your disciples, Jesus, true Jews? Or at least their politicized definition of what being a Jew looks like? The words of Isaiah should ring in our ears as it did with Jesus. As people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These religious leaders externally look like they are worshiping God, going above and beyond and following ritual purity, but their hearts are are focused on their political agenda instead. And ironically enough, one of the functions of the laws found in the Old Testament were to set Israel apart from the nations around them, but it was to bless the nations by pointing them to God and his way of life, not as a way of keeping others out. And as Jesus already showed in their misuse of these oral traditions with the example of failing to honor father and mother, Jewish religious leaders had progressively lost their way and lost the heart 
behind these purity laws, focusing only on external action or national allegiance. And so we come to the literal heart of the matter. Mark 7, 17 to 23 says, And when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, envy, slander, sorry, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus was bringing them and us back to what these laws were truly pointing to, that we need a deeper purity than just external actions, a purity of motivations. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright states that Jesus is insisting that good and bad external and physical actions come from internal and spiritual sources. And that therefore the poisoned wells of human motivation are the real problem to which the purity laws are pointing. We see throughout the Gospels Jesus' preoccupation with the heart. The most famous spot being the Sermon on the Mount where he said things like, You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever hates his brother or is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Or you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In places like the Sermon on the Mount and here in Mark, Jesus is pointing to the human condition that required these purity laws to be established in the first place. That being, it's not just our actions that are broken, it's our very selves right down to our hearts. Which is actually very interesting, especially today, because we place such a high value on our hearts. We hear people uh, say around us, or maybe we even say to ourselves, follow your heart. The heart wants what it wants, or be true to yourself. If we want something, as long as it doesn't hurt or oppress others, why should we be denied? The heart wants what it wants. I don't don't know what to do. Well, what, what does your heart tell you? Follow your heart. This is the prevailing sentiment of our culture today, that the desires of our heart can't be wrong or bad, and must be pursued if we want to experience a good, meaningful, and fulfilled life. However, the biblical story and the words of Jesus here are saying, yeah, but there's something wrong with your heart. The heart, the metaphorical place of all our feelings, affections, and desires is broken, leading us to have what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, deceitful desires. Or to put it simply, we want wrong things, or we want right things, but go about getting them in the wrong way. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a a history buff. I've loved 
history since I was a kid. I've been fixated and f fantasized about uh, castles and knights and pirates and treasure. Uh, apparently, my like kindergarten graduation, what I wanted to be was a pirate. Um, I, you know, I don't even care. Most people who know me know I actually really love pirates, and if I could do life differently, I might be hunting treasure down in like the Bahamas, but besides the point. Uh, in, in the process of, of uh, sorry, uh, as I fed this passion, as you can see, I've still kind of maybe fed it, but it, it, it only grew. I pursued a degree in Oh, and this one's at one though, so maybe be uh, be prepared to throw me a nine volt battery and don't don't hit me in the face or something. Um, sorry. So, as I was saying, that the plan was I, I went and pursued a degree of history with with the the plan of becoming a history teacher. In the process of getting my degree, in my spare time, I would I would binge on historical things, learning more about the Roman Empire or the Renaissance and going down rabbit trails and fantasizing about what life might be like if I lived back then. This was my, one of my heart's desires, and it was actually leading me through a period of my life. And pursuing the study of history isn't inherently wrong or bad. Understanding history can even inform our present and future. However, I remember a growing sense that God didn't want me uh, pursuing uh, history the way that I was. And I pushed back uh, periodically. I rationalized. Why would God care about this? He wouldn't. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with this. And this was my back and forth uh, until one day on my lunch break at my summer job, sitting on a deck by myself with the sun on my face, I felt God clearly ask me, would you give up your love and pursuit of history for me? And through a well of emotions, some very surprisingly unexpected tears, thank God I was eating by myself, and uh, not fully understanding why, I said yes. And so I stopped binging on history stuff and going down the imaginative rabbit trails that would normally fill some of my spare time. And in its place, I started pursuing God and others a little bit more. I fully trust and believe now, now, in hindsight, that what I was pursuing and the way that I was pursuing it was not what God was wanting me to do. It was a deceitful desire for me because it led me to fantasize and desire ways of living that were contrary to what God wanted for me. Now, I'm, uh, I'm perfectly aware that this is a pretty tame example because if we really plumb the depths of the human heart, my own included, we would find far more disordered or wrong desires. But the point is, our hearts are not what we've been made to believe they are. They are an unreliable compass that will not help us navigate life well. And God knew this from the very beginning because even when he established laws and a new way of living for the ancient Israelites, the Spirit prompted Moses to tell the people in Deuteronomy 30 and 31 that despite all that God had done 
and given them. They would continue rebelling because they are broken humans and something more was needed, a transformation of the heart. And thankfully, God also promised them he would do this. This promise was further developed by the Old Testament prophets once Israel was defeated and exiled. The, the very consequences God warned them of when not living a life with him at the center. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and, they, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Now, Jesus is pointing to the fundamental problem, but Mark wants his readers to assume that Jesus also has the answer to that problem. Mark has been showing story after story what the kingdom of God really looks like, and confrontation after confrontation, he's making clear that God's kingdom is in stark contrast to the ways of the world. Mark, along with the other writers of the New Testament, are pointing to Jesus as the one where the biblical promises of a new heart has come true and is made available to all who want it. That somehow, with Jesus, our hearts can be transformed and we can take part in the kingdom he is ushering in. So if heart transformation is what's needed, how does it actually happen? Because unfortunately, this passage doesn't conclude with Jesus giving his disciples his five-step plan for heart transformation. The thing is, there is actually no easy way to transformation. Believing in Jesus dying for us and that God raised him from the dead is the first step. However, you've probably noticed that we don't just believe and then wake up perfect the next morning. That's because God is closer to that of a gardener desiring to tenderly and patiently care for our growth than how we often view him as a genie giving us what we want now. And so transformation is not an overnight thing. The Apostle Paul shed some light on what this process looks like in Galatians 5, 16 to 25, saying, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Transformation of the heart comes by cultivating an ever-growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means when he says throughout this passage, walk by, be led by, live by, and keep in step with the Spirit. And like all relationships, this requires effort. It actually requires effort. But by partnering with God, we can create space in our daily lives so that we can become more attuned to the Holy Spirit, so that He can reshape our hearts by His love and grace. Throughout church history, this has been called the journey of spiritual formation, the journey of becoming more and more like Jesus, so that his heart and desires become our heart and desires. And this was typically done through the intentional inclusion of various spiritual practices in the life of the believer. Practices that create space in our lives to become more attuned to the Spirit so that he can reshape our hearts. Three really easy ones that you can pick from or do all three, are starting your day in prayer and scripture, uh, something called the daily office, we'll dive into it a little bit, and the prayer of examine. Very briefly, I'll describe each one. The first is pretty straightforward. It's in, it's in its description, or it's in, in its title. In the morning, when you wake up, let the first thing you do be a short time in prayer and reading your Bible. The reality is most of us probably wake up grab our phones, and spend the next 10 to 15 minutes checking texts, emails, social media, or the day's wordle. We choose to begin our day already immersing ourselves with what the world uh, decides. However, waking up, saying a prayer, inviting the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us today, and then spend a few minutes in Scripture, which can be as simple as reading a psalm, can make all the difference when done regularly. This seems so minor, but beginning our day this way allows God to have the first word in our lives rather than Instagram. Second, the daily office. This is an ancient practice that's been done throughout all of church history. Very, very simply, it's fixed hour prayer. This practice stems from the ancient Jewish tradition of praying the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. A devout Jew would pray this prayer three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. Jesus and his disciples likely practiced this being devout Jews. The early church then adopted this practice and began praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. So very simply, this can look like setting an alarm on your phone for 9 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9 p.m. and reciting either, uh, either or both of these prayers. Time often gets lost during the day. Work, family, and other responsibilities or desires all compete for and demand our attention. However, by bringing our minds back to God periodically throughout the day, we have little moments where we refocus and reattune our hearts and minds to how the Spirit might be working around us and in us. The last practice that can help attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit and how He wants to shape and transform our hearts is called the prayer of examine. 
Again, this is an old practice that's been used throughout church history that serves as a way for prayerful reflection with Jesus on our day. Very simply, at the end of your day, get comfortable and invite the Holy Spirit to guide you as you review the events and emotions of your day. The Holy Spirit might want to highlight and you might want to focus on, in on a variety of things. And so these, these might be a time where you were really aware of God's presence in your day. Remember that moment and thank God for it. Or perhaps a strong emotion uh, you felt that day, good or bad. Reflect on why you might have responded the way that you did. Inviting the Holy Spirit into uh, the process of pondering that question. And then really it ends up just being thanking God for the good uh, and then asking the Spirit how He would handle the bad. What you end up focusing on could be a variety of things, but the point is to let the Spirit show you the things He wants to show you as this will only deepen our awareness of His presence in our everyday life and the areas of our hearts He actually wants to do a work on and transform. Putting these things into practice creates space for the Spirit to transform our hearts. However, when we do things like these regularly, the temptation is to go the way of the Pharisees and the scribes, simply going through the motions, checking off boxes on the spiritual checklist, or to forget the point of it all. Heart transformation so that we can love God and others in the way of Jesus. And the possibility of this isn't meant to keep us from putting these things into practice. Rather, it's to guard our hearts and regularly reflect on our motivations. Why are we doing these things? Biblical scholar and teacher of spiritual formation, M. Robert Mulholland, stated that if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. Are you more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more caring, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago. If you cannot answer these kinds of questions in the affirmative, and especially if others cannot answer them in the affirmative about you, then you need to examine carefully the nature of your spiritual life and growth. If you find yourself going this way, then switch things up. Take a break from one practice and begin another. That's okay. This is a process. It's a journey of transformation that requires time and periodic adjustments. Or the best thing might be is to confess and ask the Holy Spirit to turn your heart. Once again, committing yourself to His process of transformation. God has always, always prioritized the heart. The various purity laws weren't meant to be used as a way to gain spiritual superiority over others or as a means to enact a political agenda, but served to point to the real problem. And through Jesus, God has begun and continues to do a new thing through the Holy Spirit, transforming hearts so that any who come can enter into God's kingdom and his presence. We've been seeing it throughout the entire book of Mark so far. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. Here at Seoul, one of our family values is that we believe in taking a next step. 
And I know that the Holy Spirit has a next step. He wants each of us to take on this journey of heart transformation. So before we conclude, the team is going to lead us in a time of reflection, and our prayer team will be back at the crosses. The next few minutes will look different for everyone here, and that is absolutely okay. If you're new to faith or not so sure about this, maybe you just need to sit and reflect on it all. Thinking about what is my heart actually like? How am I being led in my life? Others of you might desire the transformation Jesus offers, but really have no idea what your next step is. And so maybe you need to use this time and pray. Simply asking in a quiet voice, Holy Spirit, come and transform me. And then just listen and feel where he might be guiding you. Others of you will already have an idea of what that next step is or already know of an area in your life where you're operating from a deceitful desire rather than who you are in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you then to go and pray with a member of our prayer team. If you need to confess a way of life or thinking, then bring it to light by sharing it with one of them. This is the act of confession. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our prayer team would love to proclaim God's forgiveness over you as you take a step towards a transformed heart. Or maybe you need direction on how to take that step that you're thinking of or strength and commitment to take it. Again, I invite you to pray with our team. Share with them what you feel the, the Holy Spirit might be leading you in so that they can pray for specific direction in your life. Like I said, this will look very different for everyone here. So however the Spirit leads you this morning, let's create space right now to allow the Spirit to begin and continue transforming our hearts. Let's move and do that. I give you my soul I live for you alone Every breath that I take Every moment I'm awake Lord, have your way in me Lord, I give you my heart give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, have your way in me. And this is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I 
actually want to encourage you to, sh to sh actually share it with someone this week. 
Go for coffee with one of our pastors. Talk with your life group or discipleship group leader. Or bring it up with a close friend. Transformation and discerning where the Spirit might want to work in your life is a process. And it's always best done in loving community. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promise of transformed hearts. Thank you that through Jesus you have made a way to bring inner healing so that we can be who you call us to be. And Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us as we seek to be transformed by you as you usher in your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Soul Sanctuary, you're already standing, which is perfect. In ancient times, the one, uh, the one who gave a blessing extended their hands, and those who wished to receive it did likewise. Soul Sanctuary, may we walk by the Spirit wherever we go. May we be led by the Spirit wherever He leads. May we live by the Spirit no matter what life throws our way. And may we keep in step with the Spirit that we might live with transformed hearts in the way of Jesus. Now go and live the church and we'll see you next week.